Hey guys, today on the podcast, I have Professor Mark Hamilton with me on the show. Professor Hamilton is an international expert in muscle physiology, and he is also the father of the soleus push-up. So the soleus push-up is a miracle movement that can change your life, and if not your life, it can definitely help the lives of others. This is a fantastic show full of amazing science and the awe Someness of the human body. It really is. Uh, I think you're going to love the information in, in this show. At the end of the show, I want you to stay tuned because I'm going to give you all the resources for how you can look at the data and the research that Professor Hamilton has put together on, on what the Sully's push-up is and what it does and what it can do for you and your friends and your family and your loved ones. So stay tuned at the end of the show to make sure you get all the resources that are available to learn how to do this push-up, to learn about this push-up and why you want to do this push-up, the Soleus push-up, the SPU. And I'm also going to put those resources in the notes of the show. I really think you're going to enjoy this show. But before the show, a word from our sponsors. All right, so our sponsor is OSIOnline.com. And this is the one-stop shop for all your physical body needs. At OSIOnline.com, though, you can... Look at our wonderful programs that can help you develop the body that you want. Maybe you're a little tight, stiff, stuck, or you feel like your body is just not as strong and as, as, as mobile as it should be. Maybe you need the Unlock Your Body program. Maybe you just want to be resilient and bulletproof and do, be able to do anything it is you want to do because you know you're designed to do anything it is you want to do. So maybe you need the Design Your Body program. Or maybe you have a pair of dumbbells and you're like, you know what, I want to be sculptured out of granite. So maybe you want the Build Your Body program. Either way, Unlock Your Body, Design Your Body, Build Your Body, all of those are available at osionline.com. Check it out. That URL again is www.osi-online.com. All right, now back to the show. Pull up a chair and buckle up. It's the Original Strength Podcast. Professor Hamilton, are you the father of the Soleus push-up uh, or the inventor or... Tell me yeah, about it. Yeah, you would, you... Definitely, you, would, you would definitely say that. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's one of those, the type of father, though, that, that maybe spent years with his, with his uh, spouse trying to, to uh, uh, conceive, and, yeah. and it was, you might have had uh, some difficulty in doing it. The, the, uh, my research uh, began in the 1990s, uh, actually as a graduate student in the 1980s, but uh, in the, in the mid-1990s, I was a postdoctoral fellow at University of Texas Medical School. And the very first independent study that I did where I wasn't a trainee was, was actually close to this topic. Uh, it was in animals, though. And, and it was, it was uh, the title, I can't remember exactly, but it was examining the role of local contractile activity uh, and fiber type, uh, meaning the type of muscle, uh, on uh, uh, the molecular mechanisms that regulate metabolism. And in that particular study, I was focused on an enzyme that uh, is, is critical for a variety of health outcomes, but it's, it's best known for it's, uh, it's sort of the vacuum cleaner for fat in the bloodstream. And it's the only way that humans or, or mammals can get fat out of the blood. And so that, that very first study, we were looking at local contractile activity uh, uh, and we were interested in a high duration of contractions compared to the normal high amount of inactivity throughout the day. And so I've come full, not really full circle. It's, it's been pretty much uh, sticking to that goal, but to get to it is obviously required, a, you know, dozens of research studies. And so um, I think you probably are right in, in, in saying that even, even when we were began doing the human work, uh, it took quite a while for us to develop this. We tried all kinds of, of, um, uh, studies prior where we were more interested in, in what happens with standing and ambulatory activity and the kind of things that most people are accustomed to doing all the time. Uh, and we saw from that very quickly that that wasn't going to cut it. We were looking for potent effects. And, uh, and so we'll, we'll have time to talk about that today, I'm sure. But the, the bottom line for your, for your viewers, if, if they're busy doing something right now and they say, I need to get the main point to that, which is that uh, um, it's just a fundamental fact, and it, it applies to humans and all animals, that that muscle metabolism is very low when it's at rest. And like it or not, that's just the way it is. And we can come back and talk about more of that. One of the, for example, the big myths uh, that's out there pertains to 
Well, what if I do weight training and add muscle? Will that help my metabolism? That's a very frequent question. We can come back to that. But the fact is, whether we like it or not, muscle has a low metabolic rate. And so its ability to contribute to whole body uh, health is, is important, but limited because of its low metabolic rate. So it can sort of like a, if you have a, uh, an engine that needs to use fuel, it can only use so much fuel. And that, that fuel use is going to be dependent upon how much the engine is running and, and so on. And obviously the quality of the engine, the type of the engine and and that's what we we spent so long trying to develop first in animals, and then we applied those findings to humans, and and that's what led to this the ver- first paper uh, that our lab published on the Sully's push-up uh, this last year. But we certainly have more coming. So there are like what six hundred muscles in in the human body. How right. did you like? Did you just look at all the muscles and say which one does not use? Glycogen. No, 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 no. How did you find the soleus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so first of all, uh, um, like a lot of things in science, that that you you uh, uh, move along incrementally sometimes, and then occasionally you have these big bursts in productivity, and uh, and sometimes those bursts in productivity are because you're trying something that hasn't been tried before and it's unique. But before we get to that part, you you are you ask a good question. The the um, the, the fascinating thing to me about the soleus muscle is that it is unique in all animal species. And uh, uh, of course, when you, when you talk about humans, you know, we're, we're, we're a very unusual kind of animal. Um, and for a lot of reasons, one of them is that, is that we walk on two legs and not on four, like, like uh, most other mammals do. Uh, and that has a big bearing on muscle physiology. Uh, but rats and cats and other types of mammals uh, uh, do have a soleus muscle generally, not always, uh, and it has been studied in animals. and And a, a, a beautiful talking point here that I just think is fascinating, and it maybe will help. It's it's more than just a a, a scientific fact that I'm going to give you here, but it's it's one of those things that sticks with people. They remember it, and then it helps them in a practical way apply something like the, the Solis push-up, which, which you'll hear me say SPU, just an acronym for Solis push-up. Um, and, and, and that's this fact, which is that probably the first good muscle physiology study that I'm aware of was 150 years ago in looking at different types of muscles. And so it was by a famous anatomist. His name was Ron Vier. He's a French fellow. And, and Ranvier was, you, those people who are uh, students in neurobiology have, have heard his name well. Uh, he, he, w- he ended up doing some profound work in, in neurobiology. But he, he, before doing that, he actually was a muscle physiologist. And again, 150 years ago, we're talking Civil War type of, uh, of era. And, and he published a couple papers on the soleus. And the studies he did were remarkably uh, sophisticated, even by today's standards. And, and his conclusion was that no matter what kind of animal he was looking at, and he, and he looked at several, I'll share those with you, but that when he looked at different animals, he said, the soleus is special. And, and first of all, just, just from gross anatomy, you can dissect muscles and you can see what do they look like, right? And he said that the soleus was always a, a reddish, darker muscle compared to the other more pale white muscles in the legs. You especially can tell that in an animal that has a lot of fast twitch white muscle. For example, he, he looked at rabbits, he looked at cats. A cat and a rabbit are both good for sprinting, right? And then there's different kinds of, of uh, muscles in the leg, but in a cat, almost all of the muscle is super good for sprinting, it's white. And cats, of course, don't walk around a long time. That's why we don't take our cats out on a daily walk like we do our dogs or our children, right? And so, so he, Ron Vier, though, noticed that cats have a soleus muscle that's very fatigue resistant. The fellow actually, even in the 1870s, was able to do isolated stimulation of muscle. And he, he, he was able to make the muscles contract and look at the contractile properties. And what he said was, he said, he said, the soleus is slowly contracting compared to other muscles. Now, the phrase slow twitch muscle had not yet been coined, but Ron Vier figured it out. Then he also said it, he looked microscopically at the capillaries, which are things you can't see without a microscope. 
And he says that the capillaries in the soleus were abundant and he called them curvy because capillaries are not straight tubes. Those are the little smallest blood vessels in the body. They're literally no bigger than the size of one red blood cell. And he said that the, the capillaries were curvy and that's exactly what we know now. They're not straight tubes. And the more of them you have, the more curvy they are. He, so he described the contractile properties as well as the, some of the, uh, the, the cardiovascular issues. And, and they also said it was a, a fatigue resistant muscle. And he did that in two different papers. And he, if he even went so far, and here's the big take home point that I want people to remember. Ron Vier was, was, was wise enough to compare different animals. And he said, surprisingly, even the domesticated cat, which he knew was sedentary, had this special property. He said, and then he looked at two types of rabbits. He looked at, he was French. So he looked at the wild hare, which are more like the jackrabbits we have in Texas. And they're more of the dark meat type of rabbit. They have more endurance. But then he also looked at the domesticated rabbit. And he showed that the domesticated rabbit had much more white fatiguing type of muscles, except for the soleus. The soleus in each of these species was special. So let's fast forward now to modern day, 150 years later. There have been a lot of studies on the soleus, including in our lab, where we've looked at the molecular properties. And, and a big take-home point from that is in the era of molecular biology, when we can identify what genes are turned on by measuring the mRNA, we know that the gene expression profile in the soleus muscle is very different than other muscles. We published on that maybe 15, 20 years ago. But what's really remarkable, and this is another type of thing, you just can't get this fact out of your head. The soleus gene expression profile, when we look at thousands of genes, is, is dissimilar to other muscles to the following degree, that the soleus gene expression profile is, has more in common with the diaphragm and with the eyes than it does with other leg muscles right next to it. So for example, if you look at the gastrocnemius or the tibialis anterior, the gene expression profile of it is so different from the soleus that the soleus is more like your diaphragm in your, in, you know, uh, uh, right above your belly or your eyeballs. And so, so the soleus is unique. And we knew from all kinds of studies, it had some molecular machinery in it that's very good for fatigue resistance and so on. So we, we, had, a, we had been studying this in animals, uh, but the big difference between the mammals, the four-legged type and us, is that in the four-legged type of mammals, that the soleus muscle is very small. And, and when I say it's small, even relative to the total muscle mass of the body, relative to the total body weight, the soleus in a human is 10 times bigger, even relative to your body weight or to, to the uh, total muscle mass, meaning that humans have a very strong soleus. There's other anatomical features, though, about the human soleus that are special in that the, the muscle fibers are very short, which means that for a given the weight of the muscle, the soleus has twice, three, four, seven times more muscle fibers than, say, another muscle. So for every gram of soleus, it is many times stronger than other muscles because it has more muscle fibers contributing. There's neural differences and there's all kinds of other differences. The point is, is that when we walk or we stand, even grandma, who might be rather atrophied, and she might not work out, but, she, but when she's standing, you, she cannot, she has to rely on the soleus. So for example, she might be taking a, 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 a plate and putting it away in the, in the cabinet. She's going to have to reach up on one leg and put it up there, lifting the entire body weight. I doubt you she could do a one-armed handstand as, 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 as easily, right? I doubt that she could walk around or do just like arm push-ups, like, you know, standard push-up all day long. But grandma can go to the park or grandma can go shopping or cooking and she's up on her feet. So we have, we put devices on humans and, uh, that can monitor how many hours a day are we up on our feet, standing or walking. The average, quote, sedentary person is moving around about six hours a day. That's a lot of time. Every single one of those minutes, you, the soleus muscle is essential for your balance and for walking. It's the primary muscle for standing and balance. It's the primary muscle for walking. And so there's a lot of studies that have looked at the biomechanics of walking and standing and the role of different muscles and how you activate them and so on. And the bottom line to all is the soleus is important. 
So what we wanted to do is to say, in a modern day type of person, even if you're not an exerciser, even if you're not fit, have we preserved this unique uh, uh, properties in the muscle that we call the phenotype of the muscle, which is how the genes express themselves for a functional ability? Have these modern day humans preserved a soleus, maybe like our ancestors 150 years might have had when they were still farmers and they were out working all day? And, and so that was part of the, the concern we had. And one of the reasons why we were surprised is that nobody had tried this before. We, we didn't try it after, what, 20-something years of research, right? Because we didn't think that the human soleus muscle would have preserved these good qualities in an average person to be able to work for hours per day. And we can, we can talk about that a little bit later, but the, the bottom line that people need to remember is that when you're walking or, or jumping or doing other activities, the soleus muscle will fatigue. I'm not saying that this muscle will never fatigue. And it will use that, that fuel called glycogen, which is the carbohydrate that's, that's stored inside the muscle cell and is the, by far the most important muscle fuel during most types of exercise, including in the soleus. The one exception to all of that and again, this is the surprise, was that when doing the SPU, the soleus push-up, the soleus muscle does not rely on that glycogen and does not fatigue. So again, the, this, this could be a whole conversation on why is the SPU different than walking? It's very different than walking, uh, but it's more fatigue resistant in, in large part, we think, because of the type of fuel that it uses. And that's another reason why it's so health-promoting because when you're not using glycogen, that means you have to use another fuel. And those other fuels that are typically very small uh, contribution to energy and muscle, such as blood triglyceride, typically accounts for zero to five or 10% at most of the fuel, or same thing with blood glucose. It's normally a very minor contributor to muscle contraction. When we're doing the soleus push-up, those two types of fuels can now become a major contributor to the energetics of the soleus. So speaking of that, then what, what are the health benefits of the soleus pushup? Like why would, why would somebody right. want to do the soleus pushup? Yeah. It, it, okay. So uh, I don't want to go on too long, but, but let me first just say that what we published in the, in that article this last year was just the tip of the iceberg. We have a decade of work on developing the soleus pushup and we will show more types of outcomes in subsequent publications and we're doing continued studies. But in general, the, the, the first big thing that people need to remember is that we all kind of have a sense that muscle metabolism is a good thing, right? Even if you know nothing about blood chemistry, even if you know nothing about uh, inflammation or heart disease or diabetes or dementia, you kind of have this sense intuitively that mu elevating muscle metabolism is a good thing. If there was a drug that could raise muscle metabolism even 20 or 30%, it, it, I guarantee you, it would be a bigger blockbuster than any drug you've ever seen. Yeah. People spend a lot of time in the gym, uh, either trying to build muscle mass with the hope that by having more muscle, now it will be more of, a, of, of uh, an energy demanding tissue throughout the day because lean body mass is important for your resting metabolic rate. Or they say you're going to burn calories while you're exercising directly, right? And either way, muscle metabolism is important. And so, so what we uh, uh, wanted to find out is, well, what can people do to, to optimize muscle metabolism? So optimization is a, is, a, is a funny kind of word, right? It can mean a lot of things to different people. What I would say optimization means is, is, is it has several criteria. One of those is just from a physiological perspective, and physiology means how does the body work? right? Just from a physiological perspective, what is the healthiest type of metabolism? that we can have in muscle, right? So healthy could mean that you have a lot of it, meaning that you, you don't turn on muscle metabolism for minutes per day, like when you go to the gym or you do an exercise program, but you turn it on for hours per day, many hours per day, not, not a small amount. Now, that this is probably one of the, the uh, biggest goals that my lab has had for the last you know, 25 years is what can we do to sustain muscle metabolism for hours per day, not minutes, and what will that do for the body? Uh, frankly, I don't know of other researchers that, that find that, uh, that 
uh, question something that they're pursuing. Most have, 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 if they were doing that at one point, maybe years ago, they abandoned it uh, because they said it's not practical and there's other things we can do. They would say most people are, are, I hate to use the word lazy, but they would say aren't committed enough to want to spend a lot of time doing activity. So they say, how little can we do? You can imagine if, if you were to go on a Google search, you know, you'll see how low can you go? Two minutes per day is all you need. Hit training is popular because it's time efficient. And we could go on and on and on with dose response studies where, where researchers are saying, well, 30 minutes, five days a week used to be the recommendation. Then they said, maybe we can remove that five day a week thing. Now, let's just say 150 minutes of moderate activity a week, which means that you could go to the park on Saturday and get it all in. And that literally is now acceptable, according to the United States government. Or they would even say, let's make it even easier. Raise the intensity so you don't need 150 minutes. You can go 75 minutes. Or if you're going to do a high intensity, let's get it down to 15 minutes. Let's get it. And you'll see headlines in the New York Times. Let's get it to two minutes. You see, see. and, and what, I, what I would argue is, is with all of that, you, it's, it's not taking a physiological perspective. Again, my interest is speaking the truth to people about how the body works. That's what we're trying to discover. How's it, and whether you like it or not, that's just the way it is. The, the machine of muscle has a low metabolic rate when you stop working. And that makes a lot of sense. Why, why would the body be designed and built such that once you stop the activity, that, that it keeps inefficiently burning fuel for hours per day? That doesn't make sense. I don't want to buy a car that when I park it in the garage, it sputters along all afternoon. I want that engine turned down. In fact, you look at some of these fancy new cars and they turn off when you come to stoplights and stuff like this, or they idle at a very low level. I drive an old truck and it probably uses a lot of gas when I'm idling. And, and so I have to pay for that. But if you're, if you're a, a farmer or you're a hunter gatherer and you spend your entire existence trying to kill animals or trying to farm in the fields, the last thing you want to do is waste the energy that you've worked so hard to, to get to eat, right? Right. And so, so what we'd say is that in the modern day world, we have the exact opposite problem. It's not hard to get food anymore. You can, you can live any, any place in America and you can find uh, an abundant amount of food. So the problem that we have is that, that we're, we're, we're relatively inactive for the amount of food we eat. And what we would say is you can ask people to restrict the amount of food they eat. That's, that's sort of the, the normal approach. You know, let's, let's diet ourselves uh, till we're old. Or you can burn more calories. Uh, and we're not, in, we're not really coming about this from the aspect of, of what's the best weight loss approach. We're coming at it from, like you asked, how can you become more healthy? So in this first study, we were very careful to, to – uh, make the measurements under conditions where we absolutely know that weight loss is not required. It's not to say that weight loss isn't something that people would like to have. But what I'm saying is that if you can make somebody healthier and guarantee that it doesn't require weight loss, then everybody can get healthy quickly. And secondly, in this first article, we wanted to see if, if what are the immediate benefits, meaning you don't have to train for six weeks or more and to have some adaptations in the body and then see the healthy gains, could you get healthy gains even the very first day that you do the SPUs? And we looked at that. So, so that it's an immediate response and, and it works in, in people who are lean and as well as people who are overweight and obese. It works in all categories. When we analyze the data uh, by looking at, for example, just the obese people or just the lean people, everybody responded the same. We couldn't see a difference in that regard. And again, the effects were immediate, meaning they occurred in the first day they were doing this. Not to say there's not many other responses with retraining. Of course there are. But this was this was looking at that end of it. So so the soleus push-up can help a person's pick their metabolism up for hours in the day. As long as that's right, as long as the muscle continues to work, you can be absolutely guaranteed that it's going to require that extra energy. And that energy is going to come in the form of different types of fuels. And the soleus is, is a muscle that you, some of you might have heard the expression metabolic flexibility, which sort of means that, that, that um, uh, a muscle is, can either use carbohydrate for fuel or it can use fat for fuel. There are times in the day where you want it to use one but not the other. 
And some people just kind of idle along and you can feed them carbohydrate and they keep burning fat. You can, you can fast them and they keep burning carbohydrate. It's just kind of in the middle of the road. What you want to do is have that flexibility. Again, use the car engine type of approach. When one fuel becomes limiting, if you have an electric car and you can't get the electricity because there's not a charging station, it would be kind of nice to have the ability to use gasoline as well and so on. Muscle can use multiple kinds of fuel, but the, the big categories are carbohydrates and fats. And then when you subdivide that into the type of carbohydrates, there's that intracellular glycogen, which I mentioned before. That's the fuel that doesn't float around in the bloodstream. It stays in the muscle cell. And, and it, there's a limited reserve there because once you use it up, it's gone. And, and when glycogen is gone, the muscle has to stop working. Uh, and, and that's well known. So, so the, the, the problem that we were trying to solve was in part, what kind of fuel might the soleus use when it's working under the conditions of an SPU, not under the conditions of walking. I'm careful to say that now twice, right? Because when, you, when the muscle's working by itself, it doesn't have to compete for energy with other tissues. It doesn't have to compete for blood flow and oxygen. So the soleus can be a hog in that regard. And it can say, I want to use blood glucose because that's an endless supply. That's coming from outside of me. And I can use that for hours at a time if it's available. But if it's not available, meaning if I didn't just ingest a carbohydrate mill, what we showed was that the soleus can switch over and start burning a lot of fat. And it switches pretty quickly. In other words, by about the fourth hour after not eating a, a meal, it's now back to fat burning like if you had been fasted overnight. And so that then there's two types of fats that, that there's more, more than two types, but the two types that are the broad categories are the kind of fat that's in the bloodstream or the type of fat that can be stored in the muscle. And then the, where coming from the bloodstream, it can either come from the stored adipose tissue, which is your belly fat or leg fat and so on, or it can be coming from the fat that's, that's in the big lipoprotein particles. And those are the really dangerous ones. Those are the things that cause heart disease and uh, very associated with diabetes, dementia, and so on. And we showed that in a single day, if, if, if the people hadn't, if they were fed a high carbohydrate meal, the, the soleus could increase carbohydrate oxidation. Oxidation means aerobic burning of fuel. The soleus could have a high rate of oxidative metabolism of carbohydrate without using glycogen, and therefore it could lower blood glucose very effectively. And, and, and that was uh, remarkable because you think about it, you, you take a very small amount of muscle, 1% of the body weight, and yet it can use, it can lower blood glucose at, at, at such a high level that it can rival what you would see uh, with any other type of, of exercise. And, and, and in fact, most types of exercise uh, can't compete with this. And it, it depends upon the, the conditions that you study it. And one of the problems is that most of the time, people say, like we said before, their exercise duration is limited. And so if you exercise, even in the hour before uh, a carbohydrate meal, even if you exercise intensely the hour before that meal, several very good studies have shown in people of all types, in other words, lean, obese, people with diabetes, without diabetes, and so on, those types of studies have shown that you, you, they do not improve the glucose tolerance in response to that subsequent meal. So let me say it again. If you exercise, even if it's intense exercise, even if it lasts 45, 60 minutes, and you get hot and you get sweaty, and you feel like you've done yourself some good, when you eat the carbohydrate afterwards, you do not improve the glucose tolerance after because of that, that, that exercise session. So, so most physiologists are, are kind of overlook that because, and there's reasons they overlook it because they say, well, uh, you know, that, that, but muscle is, is a very good uh, tissue for synthesizing glycogen. And so it can, even if it's not burning those carbohydrate calories, it might store more. And that is true. It will store more. But what they overlook is that those studies that I referred to have shown that there's other processes that are kicked in gear after you exercise that tend to dampen the ability to lower blood glucose. For example, a very nice study in Denmark showed that they had people uh, exercising just one leg. And then that way they can measure the amount of glucose uptake or the insulin sensitivity into the working leg. 
And then they can take the other leg in the same person, same hormones, everything's the same. The only difference was that that leg wasn't exercising for a couple hours. And so when they compared the two legs, the, the leg that had been working, as you would expect, was able to resynthesize more glycogen afterwards, and it helped promote glucose uptake into that leg. If we ended the story there, people would say, see, muscle's great. You exercise and you're going to soak up all this glucose in your blood and you're going to help yourself. But this study was careful enough to say, hold on, there's other tissues in the body than the working muscle. Let's look at the non-working muscle. So when they looked at the other leg, again, the same person, same meal, same moment in time, that leg actually took up less blood glucose than normal. Okay, what does this mean? And this has been shown also from, from like cycling or running exercise. And then look at the legs versus the arms, which you don't really use when you do those types of exercise. So the non-working muscle actually takes up less blood glucose than normal. So it becomes insulin resistant. Okay, let me say that again. Insulin sensitivity is, occurs after exercise, but in the working muscle, not in the non-working muscle. The non-working muscle can become insulin resistant. Okay, that's so a very important point. It's like robbing Peter to pay Paul then in that yeah, respect. Yeah, it, and it makes sense from, a, from sort of an anthropological or biology standpoint, right? You would say that that, that working muscle, it needs to get its fuel back so you right. can go out and exercise again. And so it's going it's, it's, it's to sacrifice your long-term health, diabetes and heart disease and dementia, because that most people would argue, well, that's down the road, right? The muscle is selfish and it's going to soak up what, what it needs. But then the, the, the resting muscle is going to say, hey, I don't need any glucose. You can have it. That's only one mechanism. There are several. I'll, I'll just real briefly, I won't give you as much detail on these, but studies have very carefully put catheters down into the, uh, the, the belly and the part of the gut where glucose is absorbed. And so you can measure the glucose coming out of the small intestine. And after exercise, the body, I'm talking large muscle mass exercise, you know, heavy exercise. Uh, that, that we would do on a treadmill, for example. That kind of exercise actually causes a faster rate of glucose absorption into the bloodstream. Okay, now what does that mean? It's very similar to if you ate carbohydrate that we would call refined sugar, you know, simple sugar. Some of you might have heard of the phrase uh, glycemic index. If you're a diabetic, you probably said avoid foods with a high glycemic index. Why? Because that type presumably is, is rapidly entering into the bloodstream whereas complex carbohydrates have to be broken down and they're slower. Well, the, the, the exercise almost is like it, it promotes a high glycemic index of even sugar, <laughs> of, a, of higher than normal, meaning that it's rapidly absorbed into the blood. Again, that makes sense when you say that the body's trying to resynthesize that glycogen and it's saying, I'm not gonna keep glucose in the, in the blood low. I want it to be high. I wanna get some more glucose to those, to those previously working muscles. And that's been shown in several studies, humans and in animal studies. And there's other mechanisms. So, so the, the point that I'm making, and this is if anybody was taking notes and I was going to test you on it, you know, I think it's, it, uh, what you would say is just very simple concept is that when you stop your exercise bout in the hours afterwards, metabolism in the muscle quickly returns to normal. It does not keep burning carbohydrates. There is not a single study that I'm aware of in either animals or in humans that shows that when the muscle stops working, it keeps burning carbohydrate. It doesn't happen. Okay. So secondly, you would say the muscle wants to resynthesize that glycogen in the hours after exercising, but that doesn't necessarily, and it will promote insulin sensitivity in those muscles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to improve what we'd call oral glucose tolerance. Glucose tolerance basically means when you ingest carbohydrate, what kind of rise in blood glucose concentration do you have in the following three hours? And that's what determines your risk for, for uh, diabetes, inflammatory conditions, and some cardiovascular conditions and so on. That rise in blood glucose has been heavily studied in clinical studies and the insulin, I should say. I mean, the elevated insulin also has, has dastardly effects on the body in numerous ways. That's one reason why a lot of people try to restrict simple sugars or even carbohydrate in total. That people try to eat limited carbohydrate these days. They say, I don't want to have as high of, of glucose, but I also don't want to have high insulin. What we showed in this study was that in the very first day that people started to do Soli's push-ups, within an, about 30 minutes of time, after they ingested a 75-gram glucose challenge drink, 
that within 30 minutes, the blood glucose concentration was already significantly less than if they had just been sitting there. So the effects are truly immediate within 30 minutes. By an hour, maybe in, you know between 45, 75 minutes is when the peak glucose concentration typically occurs. By that point, glucose was lower by about 50 milligrams per deciliter in these people. That's a very large effect, okay? Again, these people had, had, had hyperglycemia uh, because we gave them a glucose challenge and they were also uh, uh, pre-diabetic type of glucose response. By two hours, glucose was still about 50 milligrams per deciliter lower. That's a large difference. And so, so it's a sustained effect. And then even at three hours for that third hour, when glucose is starting to come back to the fasting level now, there was still significant difference. So, so there's a big effect throughout that entire time. Um, going back to this theme of why do you need prolonged contractile activity and how often should I do Soli's push-ups and all those types of practical questions, here's a good point that probably will stick with some people. Again, I'm going to give credit to other scientists because it's been looked at several times. They've had people, for example, do treadmill or bicycle exercise right during that first hour when blood glucose is rising to a high level. And within minutes after stopping the exercise, blood glucose had been de decreased significantly, okay, while they were doing the exercise. But within minutes of stopping that exercise, the blood glucose rapidly jumps back up. And in some cases, depending on the study and how intense the exercise was, the blood glucose can actually rebound above the level that it was if they'd just been sitting that entire hour or two. And so then when you look at the, the whole excursion over three hours, most of the time points throughout that, there is not a reduction in the glucose concentration in a meaningful amount like I described for Vasoli's push-ups when people do exercise. Again, if you exercise prior to it or when you exercise during that period, like I said, the problem is you need to keep the muscle working. It's not going to keep burning glucose when you stop the contractions. It may extract glucose for glycogen synthesis, but it won't keep burning it. And so the nice thing about the Soleus push-up is it solved the problem of how can we keep that muscle metabolism humming throughout that long period of time. So I've read on your, your paper that over 50% of the American adults um, and over 80% of people over 65 uh, they deal with metabolic problems caused by mm -hmm. diabetes and prediabetes. So the soleus push-up, that could be a way to combat the problems of metabolic syndrome, or could it even prevent metabolic syndrome? Like, certainly. I mean, it certainly has potential for that, doesn't it? Because right. you would say that, that, again, those are astounding numbers. Hopefully people paid attention it's crazy. to crazy. I mean, it's, <laughs> to, to think that that over half of Americans either have diabetes or prediabetes, right. that alone was shocking. That includes all adults, even lean, you know, 20 year olds. That's just the total population. And that means course, it's if, extremely normal and it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, and if you took people who were overweight and removed the lean people, or if you took people who were, who were only young or versus old, the numbers are higher. And like you said, for elderly people, that number is over 80%. Okay, and so 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 the second point about that type of statistic, though, is is it's very very important for people to remember the following. A lot of times they'll say, "I don't have diabetes. I'm not really that concerned with it. I have prediabetes, and may or I might be maybe I don't even have prediabetes. I might have, like you said, metabolic syndrome." The problem is, is that the 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 reason why type two diabetes is so bad for us is because the hyperglycemia and other problems that occur in the, in the body as a result of the diabetes lead to things like loss of vision or amputation of limbs or loss of your kidney function or loss of, 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 of a healthy heart. Those things are what kill you. Those things are what make your life miserable. It's very important for people to know you do not have to have diabetes for those things to occur. Those have already begun years many years prior to being diagnosed with diabetes. Pre-diabetes is a disease. The word pre is a bad word. There it should is. be another word for it. And so one of the phrases that, that is used in science is people with impaired glucose tolerance. They don't necessarily have full-blown diabetes, but they already have a disease that's leading to loss of limb, loss of eyes, loss of kidneys, heart attack, and so on. 
and the effects are very significant. And so, so there's different types of prediabetes as well, the high fasting glucose versus this impaired glucose tolerance. And it's that impaired glucose tolerance that seems to be more associated with future disease outcomes. Uh, and, and that's what can be improved so much, at least in this first study of ours, uh, as a result of doing the, the raising soleus metabolism. And, and, and so, but, but, but you mentioned metabolic syndrome, that's sort of related to all this. I mean, it, it, metabolic syndrome is, is really just a clustering of, of outcomes. Typically, it'll include blood triglyceride in that, for example. And we showed in this same study that the blood triglyceride concentration was reduced significantly. And it was very important the way we did that. We don't probably have too much time to talk about it, but I'll just kind of cut to the chase. The type of, of triglyceride that's in the the particle called very low density lipoprotein. That's that's more atherogenic uh, than than some of the other fat that's in our body, and and that is what was reduced as a result of doing the Solis pushup. And the reason it's atherogenic is that that it does bad things on its own, but that everybody's heard of, of LDL cholesterol. You know, people call it the bad cholesterol. Right. Well, VL, okay, LDL is not made in the body. It's, it's said the body makes VLD. And so this VLDL then becomes LDL. So you want to get rid of that VLDL. You don't want it circulating around. And, and there's other things even about the, the VLDL, like I said, that by itself are bad. And this was reduced significantly within that day too. And, and that goes back to your first question, how's the soleus? Why the soleus? Why did we study it? We had spent many years studying the process by which the soleus is able to take care of these lipoproteins in the blood. And it's unique in that it has, in, in our previous studies, we showed that it has 10 times more of an enzyme that is, that's called lipoprotein lipase that binds to this VLDL in the blood and breaks it apart and literally will then incinerate whatever fat molecules are there when the fat molecules enter into the working muscle. So let me say that more clearly, is that, that when VLDL is floating around in the bloodstream, it goes through the little capillaries. And when it, when it goes through a muscle capillary that has LPL in it, which is 10 times more abundant in the soleus capillaries, then it can bind to that VLDL, hold on to it so it won't keep circulating in the blood. It will literally bust apart those, those fat molecules so that fat then can enter into the soleus fibers and be used to fuel the working muscle. And then you say, where'd the fat go? You know, went into the muscle, where'd it go? Well, it actually is, is burned up inside the mitochondria through oxidative metabolism. And the CO2 that's produced from that is the CO2 that you breathe out. So you say, why do I breathe harder when I exercise? It's to get rid of CO2. And that CO2 can be coming from the fat that we just burned up as a result of the working muscle. And the second reason CO2 goes up is because it can burn up the carbohydrates as well. And so we've measured that and the soleus does it very effectively. So it is literally the muscle of health then. It is a muscle of health. And, and I would argue though, that, that if, if we, um, if we had to choose one to study, you know, that would be a good one. Uh, uh, and for, for the reasons I described before, we said that, uh, it, 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 it possesses these, these, this molecular machinery that makes it, uh, more suited to prolonged contractile activity, more suited to taking care of the lipoproteins or the fat in the blood and more suited to using blood glucose instead of glycogen. But it's the right muscle, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to do what you want it to do. You also have to have to have the right type of muscle contraction. And I would guess that in your line of work, that's, that's something you oftentimes talk to clients. You know, you say you may have great muscles, but that, but that you have to use them the right way. And, and so the way you drive your car is going to determine a lot. And the way you use them is important. And we've already hit some of these things, but that there's a lot of other physiology going on in the body besides muscle, right? And so when you exercise hard, hormones can change, other things can change. And some of those, like I've already given you a hint at, are, are very important for keeping the body going at that moment, but aren't necessarily promoting health overall. So, so, so when the, the, the Soli's push up, basically it's, it's, you can almost think of like, like you're at rest because you are sitting, you, you don't change how you sit, where you sit. You, you, you certainly don't sit more than normal. Uh, uh, 
we would just say that that we all have to sit, even people who are very active and, and because of their job or their lifestyle, even if they're big time exercisers and that's their favorite thing to do. I mean, it's my favorite hobby to do. Um, but I'll tell you that that I still find that I'm going to have to sit more hours in the day than I'm going to exercise. And, and there's not a person alive that that wouldn't apply to. And so even if you exercised twice a day, you're probably going to get a good hour in the morning, good hour in the evening. Go do it for two hours if you want to. You'll still find that you're sitting more time than you're not. And so, so with the police push-up, an advantage of it is that you're not taking time out of the day to do it because of a busy schedule, other problems like that. Or if you have commitments with work, you have commitments to your family, you need to be there for them. But what we're saying is you're going to be sitting anyhow. You might as well do something good for yourself. So let me say that again to people is that when you're sitting, if you're sitting and watching this video right now, you, your muscle metabolism is low. You could immediately start doing SPUs right now. You don't need to go out and, and, and get trained up for it. Uh, you don't need to hire a consultant or, or buy special clothing. You could certainly be trained to optimize it and get better at it. Just like people learn how to throw rocks. You may not hit the target, but it's you're, you're throwing the rock, right? And you can get better at it if you have good coaching on how to throw the rock. Uh, but people have been throwing rocks for thousands of years. And so what we'd say is working the soleus muscles is very natural to do. Now, there's an optimal way, and then there's probably a little less optimal way, but that everybody immediately could start now with something that would help. There's no excuse to not do it. Um, oftentimes, we have these uh, caveats that we give when we talk about exercise prescription. We say things like, you know, first consult with a doctor or, or you know, I'm going to start next week when I get time or, or when life settles down or whatever, you know, we, we say a lot of people just frankly don't want to. Again, I like doing it. I'm not dismissing what we do when we exercise. The problem is I can't exercise all day long. Right. Uh, but with soleus push-ups, I can. And so, so my goal is to keep my metabolism as healthy as possible. So I say there's no reason not to be doing it. I'm going to be sitting anyhow. And I never tell people, well, you eat a high-carbohydrate meal, sit down and do SPUs. No, no, that's, that's silly. Um, uh, if you want to clean dishes afterwards, clean dishes. You want to clean house, clean house. You want to go on a walk, go on a walk. But but I can guarantee you when you get back from that walk and you you're going to be sitting to do whatever you're ordinarily doing, that's that's the time you would start doing the Soli's pushups. I know you said that's silly, but when you were talking about earlier about how even three hours after a meal, um, Soli's the, the, the Soli's pushup helps right. helps keep blood sugar down. I was thinking, wow, that sounds like a perfect time to do it is after you eat. <laughs> well, yeah, certainly. That's again. Uh, when I speak to uh, 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 different professional societies, some, sometimes I'll talk to nutrition groups. And, and in the past, they would say things like, Dr. Hamilton, what's the best time to exercise? And, 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 and you, can, you can certainly persuade them that it's very good to do after you eat because you have this surge in insulin and surge in glucose, right? But then I said, but hold on a second. That period lasts for at least two hours. And so they said, well, when do I exercise? The first hour or the second hour? Well, you should exercise both of them, right? And then, then, then I would say to him, but you also have fat metabolism to take care of. And so when you're fasted or you've eaten a high fat meal, you need exercise then too. And they say, okay, well, how long does that period last? I say, well, I mean, the, the, the a fat absorption takes about eight hours after each meal. So you need to exercise for eight hours to improve it. The peak is not till about four hours. So they say, so I can do the first three hours for my carbohydrate, but I got to keep going for the fat. I go, that's right. And then they would say, and, and what about fasting? Yeah, exercise when you're fasted too. There's probably, you know, a dozen or maybe even a thousand videos out there that where people are shouting at each other about what's the best time of day to exercise. And they talk about diurnal issues. They talk about should you do aerobics in the morning when you're when you're still fasted so you could burn more fat and all those things. I stay away from those discussions for obvious reasons. But the simple thing to tell people is if you're paying attention to the way your body works, and you use just a little bit of physiology, not a lot. And I've already given people most of the physiology they need already. You want to exercise at each of those time points. And, and people say, but that's unrealistic. You know, uh, I'd say it, it, it's not a question of realistic. I mean, that's like saying that the earth is flat. What's unrealistic, I'm going to walk all the way around the world in a big circle, right? It's unrealistic, but that doesn't change the fact. That's what it is. And so I can't walk out to the horizon and say, I can't, now I can see, you know, outer space. No, I'm, 
it's a, it's it, so it's an it's an inconvenient truth, like Al Gore said, right, about climate change. And so so it's 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 but it's not inconvenient now that you can you're going to be sitting anyhow. You have something to do. Again, people will oftentimes uh, say, but I don't want to do solace pushups all day. Well, you don't have to. I'm not telling you that you have to. I'm just telling you how the body works, and you can you can make those choices. Um, in the past, we didn't have the the, the knowledge to really tell people what a choice would be. Um, and so we, we would tell people things like, well, it's up to you. Do whatever exercise you enjoy doing and that you'll stick with. And if you're going to stick with it, you better make sure you can stick with it for the rest of your life. Meaning you can have some activities that you probably won't be able to do but for the next couple of years, right? But you better have something that you can do for the rest of your life. Because we know that that if, you're, if you want to live to be 80, 90, what are you going to do that last decade of life? Odds are you're probably not going to be doing the same things you're doing now. At least you're not going to be doing them as well. And so what we would say is, is if you can adopt one habit, just one, that you could sustain seven days a week, 365 days a year, no matter where you live, no matter whether you have a knee injury or not, no matter whether your shoulder is out currently or you've got a bad back, no matter whether you're really busy with your kids or with your work, you need one activity to stick with. You also need that activity to be sustained when you get old, because if you exercise and you quit when you retire, all that exercise you did in those working years is gone. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) We all know that that metabolic health deteriorates in a time span of hours to days. You don't hold on to your exercise metabolic adaptations for months. You don't hold on to them, but for, for hours to days. I mean, it's very short lived. So you have to keep at it. But even things like muscle strength that you probably talk a lot about, I mean, you can lose a lot of strength and a lot of muscle mass just after one injury. Everybody who's broken a limb knows that that muscle atrophy is quick. It takes a matter of weeks and you can visibly see the difference. And so we'd say that you need something you can sustain 365 days out of the year. doesn't matter what kind of, of lifestyle you have and that you can continue into old age. And so th- this would be another option for people to consider. But again, it takes a commitment. Uh, you know, we're not about quick fixes. We're not about trying to say this is a, this is a gimmick. This is a shortcut. There, you know, anybody who thinks that Sully's push-ups that we're somehow uh, discussing it sort of in a uh, salesman-like way doesn't know me for one. <laughs> and they they also you'd say, how can you tell somebody do an activity? throughout the day, most every hour of the day is a quick fix, right? This is a lot right. of commitment. It is. But, but, but it's also, it's, it, it's, it's what, what I tell people is, is they say, well, what's a good tip for a family member who's not committed to something? I say, well, you know, for one, you could, you could, you could talk to them and just say, when you sit down, just try for two days. When you sit down for two minutes, do the Solis push-up, just two minutes. Okay, you don't, and and you have to be committed to do that. The first two minutes doesn't matter how well you do it. Do it with one leg if you want, right? Just do something. If you do that for two minutes, the odds are you're probably sitting down 20, 30, 40 times a day. So now you've added up over an hour of activity, and and, and they're probably going to be some of that time you start going and you forget that you're doing it. It's like uh, sitting in a rocking chair, You, you don't really keep track of the time. And so you don't need a prescription because then what people will say is, well, I sat for 15, 20, 30 minutes while I was watching the news and I just kept going. I mean, even though I, I was committed to two, I went longer. And that's what we oftentimes see. And so then before you know it, people are doing some activity throughout that whole day and they're they're keeping their muscle metabolism humming every minute that they're doing it. So here's, I, I know everybody's going to be asking this one question. All right, I'm at home, I'm sitting down. I'm I'm going to I'm going to do the soleus push up. Okay. What is the best way I can do it to get that optimal contraction of the soleus? Like can you walk me through it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a lot of questions that people are probably going to ask that are surrounding that where we would end up, you know, answering one question that would lead to another and so on. Um so what what we're trying to do again, uh we're basic biomedical research science lab. Uh um and, and we, we, we certainly didn't anticipate the level of excitement of the public and the enthusiasm of the doctors out there that are doing this. So the first thing I say, it, it's, it's not to dismiss the enthusiasm, 
but there are literally hundreds of videos that have already been made by other people. None of them were affiliated with our research. None came to me and asked for help, even to preview what they what they're going to produce, and that that some of them have millions of views. I mean, altogether, there there are there are tens and tens of millions of people who've already seen just on YouTube alone, much less Instagram and other things. So there's a lot of information out there. So we didn't expect that. Uh, these folks oftentimes, like I said, they're well-meaning and so on, but th then they end up getting creative. And I don't know where it comes from, but it, but it, it, and there's no other activity I know of that's quite like this in the sense that, that, that people who have no experience have just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm enthusiastic, I'm going to promote it, which is great to do. I mean, we, we want more people to want to exercise, right? Um, but but uh, they don't have the background and the expertise. And so, so, so what we've started to do in, in our own limited way, it's going to grow and get better, um, is we've started to, to, to uh, do two things. One of them is a website where all the content is free. It's going to have a newsletter, already has a newsletter that people can subscribe to, and we will We'll do our best to to uh, uh, update that new that that uh, website more than even once a week, and we're going to provide lots of reading materials. And some of those are from scientific articles, but what we're going to do is have what you'd call a journal club style, where we literally walk people through these papers. So experts like yourself, who are influential to to a lot of clients, can learn from that. And then, but then you also your clients and the patients of many doctors can come directly to that. And so that as they're learning from their doctor, they have limited time with them, but they can continue learning and we will, we'll provide that for them. So there's a lot that will be on that website. So it's already available and people can find it by going to soleusmetabolism.org. Okay. Soleusmetabolism.org. And it's S-O-L-E-U-S. It's how you spell soleus. Um, you can give a link to it or something. That, I will. that so and, and on that website we'll we'll also have videos and other type of things they can go to of course youtube is is is, is one way that people like to to learn that and so we've already produced a few videos and we're going to start doing that in a much bigger way we're a graduate student in the biology department here at my university daniel is doing a great job of setting that up and so um those will get into both the how do you do SPU questions as well as the why do you do them. And they're really kind of the same, to be honest. I mean, because mm -hmm. you say, how do you do it? Well, you have to understand the why to understand how, right? A lot of times right. those go together, uh, especially as it pertains to the prescription of what you're doing. So, so we do have that uh, as, as resource people. And when you look at these other videos, be careful. I mean, I, I, everybody is, wants to believe they're a critical thinker. And a lot of times I'll get patients who will comment on our videos and they'll, or they'll contact somebody in our lab and they'll say things like, but I'm a critical thinker. I, I watch at least three YouTube videos before I make a decision. So I go and I look at a doctor in Denmark, a doctor in Finland, a doctor in England, a doctor in America and so on. And then, you know, I kind of figure out just sort of like when you decide what restaurant you're going to go to, I look at those, those comments from them and then I make a decision based on their opinion. But you have to remember, none of those folks, as well-meaning as they are, have actually studied the Sully's push-up. And we've done it now for over a decade. So, so uh, be careful. Um, and like I said, I would hope that as those videos are continuing to be made and many, many news stories have been written about it, those folks would at least make the effort to come to our website. And they don't even have to interview me. They can just come there. And, and we want that website and those videos to be the an authoritative, trustworthy type of resource. Um, again, that's not really in my nature. I'm, I'm more reserved than that. But that the reason we're doing it is in response to the fact that there are millions of people all over the world out there doing Soli's push-ups now. We didn't expect that. Um, you know, we, we published a basic biomedical research study, and it's been very hard to get people to do things like sit less, and walk around more, you know, do, do, do their stretching exercises in the morning or evening, you know, be committed to an exercise program. And those who are committed for, for most kinds of exercise do it because they enjoy it and they really have to do it. But it's been very difficult getting enough people engaged. And this is something that's unique in that a lot of people have gotten engaged very quickly. I haven't seen that before. Um, and so we said we have to be responsive to at least provide what we would consider accurate 
information, trustworthy information. And that's why we're going to do that. And but the fun thing to it all is that people like yourself and your and your patients are able to learn a lot about how the body works. And you can translate that knowledge to other conditions, whether it's it's you want to understand about the diseases, you want to understand about how to exercise in other ways. Um, you want to know about the the muscle physiology. Really, we just use Soli's push-ups as a as a fascinating example, but 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 in learning that, you're gonna learn a lot more and you can apply it. And so I get a lot of questions about nutrition, about obesity, about diabetes, and 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 I, there's a there is a there is always a way to tie it back to to uh, to what they're asking. And so, but our lab is very focused, obviously, and we're not trying to uh, change the world uh, single-handedly. And we want to people like yourself and other influential people to to be able to get information that's useful. And that means it has to be trustworthy. I, I think one of the reasons why you've seen it catch on so big is because over half of our population in America <laughs> as adults are dealing with diabetes. Like, yeah. it, so the Soli's pushup is needed. Like that is yeah. a, it's a simple solution that could have huge rem- health ramifications um, to, to help people live a better life. So I, I think that's why it's probably blown up so big. Um, because it's it's needed and it's simple. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that that one thing that the average person needs to pay attention to is is when you think about just take glucose for example. We could talk about fat metabolism or inflammation as well, but but let's just talk about glucose. That that people would say, well, there's 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 you know there's more than one way to lower your blood glucose, right? I mean, and and but what they need to remember is it's much like building a table that has just with one leg. You want to have several approaches simultaneously going on here because and what the, the, the mechanism that we're focused on currently doesn't mean that there's not other processes that Soli's push-up affects, and it does. So I don't mean to, to dismiss those other processes, but the process that we've been focused on here and talking about today is what we call oxidative metabolism. And that's, that's where people would talk about burning the glucose as a fuel. Okay, and and you will not be able to sustain oxidative metabolism of glucose in the hours after each exercise session. So I don't care if you're if you're a very fit athletic person or not, you're going to have a low metabolic rate in in your muscle in the hours after exercise, especially for burning glucose. And so that process is what the Soli's push up does so well. Okay, it can sustain that for you. That and again, we're not dismissing the fact that that things like glycogen synthesis can also soak up glucose, or that you can have weight loss. That's great. And, and then there's drugs out there that work by totally different mechanisms. And there's drugs that make you urinate out more glucose. But what we're saying is that this is a natural process. You can be guaranteed that the side effects are all healthy, and and you want you don't want to neglect this particular process uh, because it's actually getting rid of the glucose from the body. So you can think about it sort of like uh, 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 paying a debt. You know, you, you can you can say, okay, I'm going to pay off this debt, but you but maybe what you've done is you've just shuffled it from one account to another. You know, you you paid off one bank, but now you owe another bank. When you store fuel in the body, whether it's fat or glucose, it's still there. You still have a, you still have a debt to take care of. When you burn it as a fuel, like I said before, it's leaving the body in the form of CO2. It's now in the air, it's gas. So you literally have incinerated. It's like if you put wood in your in your fireplace, there's a weight to that wood. You can see the wood. It, it might weigh 10, 20 pounds. You burn it up, it goes up the smokestack. It's in the air at some point and there's nothing left. I mean, it's just maybe a few a- a ounces of ashes. So very little is remaining. And so I would rather burn up that glucose after meals rather than storing. I would rather burn up the fat that's in my blood rather than trying to figure out how to store it. And I can guarantee you one thing, there are no drugs out there that promote this burning that we're talking about. Okay. So people are tripping over themselves for what's the latest, greatest drug for glucose control, but that those things are focused on what we'd call non-oxidative metabolism. And that's great. Okay. I'm promoting that. I mean, that's great. But what we'd say is, don't you also want to tap into a very potent mechanism in your body for burning it? And you can take advantage of it too. And again, that's just for the glucose that are talking about. There's there's other processes such as you know cardiovascular responses that are very healthy, 
when you have muscle blood flow. Professor Hamilton, this has been more than fascinating. I I, I love talking about stuff like this. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? It is. It is. Um, and again, like you said, you get to learn how the body works. And that's sure. just so neat. Like to me, sure. like I can't like the the body is I, I call, it's awesomely and wonderfully made. It's just it's mind blowing. Mm. It um, is. It is. Yep. I'm, I'm going to put uh, all your resources in the, the links of the show um, so that people can go to the website and, and learn more about it, the article, and they can read about it as well. Uh, I got one more question for you. Uh, do you like peanut butter? Sure. What's your favorite kind? Uh, so my, my wife has been going to the, 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 the grocery store chain here is popular. You can grind up your, your peanut butter and she, she gets like five or six flavors of the stuff. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it, it used to be that almond butter was exciting or pecan right. butter, but, but they put in all these other little fun things. So, so we have four or five, these little uh, plastic containers that always have peanut butter in it. And so I eat plenty of, of that. Uh, uh, I, and and I, I don't know where you're going with this. I've had several people interview me and say things like, like uh, about limiting how much sugar I eat or how much fat I eat. And yeah, we try to do that too. But the, the fact is, is I'm not afraid of eating it, knowing that I can metabolize it afterwards. I no, I'm I'm only going with like I love peanut butter and nut butters, okay. and I was just trying to see, you know, see if other people like it too. Um, I just love asking that question because I like mm. to. It's it's a way I get to know people. Um, okay, it's just a weird right. thing. Um, so uh, last question, I know you're uh, the she grinds it herself at the store. Do right. you it? Do you prefer it chunkier or creamier? I think the only way we get it at the store is creamy. I don't know if there's a method to grind it where it keeps the chunks in there. Okay, good deal. I, I was just like, I, some some people like to stir in uh, ground up or chopped up nuts into uh, there. Into oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's usually a lot of combining of something with all that, right? Uh, and so uh, I, it, I'm, a, I'm a good eater, I guess you would say. Um, and that's one thing that I, I've enjoyed not having to restrict what I eat. Um, I would rather just just burn a few more calories throughout the day and uh, continue eating. Me too. I'm I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I like uh, I like enjoying food. Um, Professor Hamilton, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been awesome. Good. Well, I appreciate you inviting me, and uh, it's been nice talking to you. All right, guys, that was an awesome show. I mean, to me, I enjoyed it. But if you want to check out the resources for the Soleus Push-Up, you can check out Dr. Hamilton's YouTube channel. I'm going to put the URL for that in the notes below. You can go to soleusmetabolism.org. Uh, also, I'll put that in the notes below. And you can check out the iScience article um, that is just a treasure trove of just really neat science. Um, and I'll put the link for that in the show, too. So, just so you know, the videos and websites are resources to provide expert commentary about not only what is specifically discussed in the podcast, but much more. You will find trustworthy instructional information about how, why, when to do this type of muscular activity called the Soleus Push-Up. These resources are being developed by members of Dr. Hamilton's laboratory who are the only scientific experts that have developed the Soleus Push-Up for years. Therefore, it is designed to help provide you with the most trustworthy and accurate information possible. So basically, this information is coming straight to you from the originators of the Soleus push-up. If anybody knows the SPU, it is Dr. Hamilton and his group. Thanks for listening. Now get outside and play.